Hey, everybody. I'm Tara Luafemi. And I'm Darian Carr. And we are Masters of Architecture students at the GSD. The Nexus is produced in conjunction with a commitment by the Francis Loeb Library to acquire and create an open access bibliography of various media suggested by the community at the intersection between race and design. Leslie Loco graduated from the Bartlett School of Architecture, University College London, with a BSc ARC in 1992 and an MARC in 1995, and went on to earn a PhD in architecture from the University of London in 2007. In 2004, she published her first novel, Sundowners, a Guardian Top 40 bestseller, following up with 11 more novels. Loco has taught architecture all over the globe. In partnership with the University of Johannesburg, she established the Graduate School of Architecture in 2014 and became the director of school. She is currently founder and director of the African Futures Institute in Accra, Ghana. In 2021, she was appointed as the curator of the 18th Venice Biennale of Architecture, set to open in 2023. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. So we wanted to start with the African Futures Institute. Um, we have some specific questions about that, but for our listeners, could you speak a bit about the process of kind of what you hope to accomplish and what you hope to make with that? Sure. I don't know if people will know, but I started a school of architecture in Johannesburg. It was the Graduate School of Architecture. Yes. Ran that for about five years and it was started from scratch. And in retrospect, I now understand that that was a kind of pilot project mm-hmm. for the African Futures Institute. And it's an institute, not a school of architecture. Um, it's located in Accra. And it has two sort of main, or actually three main prongs. One is a public events platform, which is to do with speakers, you know, guest lectures, mm-hmm, talks, mm-hmm. films, symposia, and so on. The other is a teaching program, which we will start in 2024, partly because of the Biennale appointment. Mm-hmm. It's kind of thrown the schedule out a little bit. And a research agenda. Mm-hmm. And the idea is um, really to bring into existence a new generation of African and diaspora architects and practitioners. So, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. We had a quote about it and we were looking at the about section and how that starts with the series of what if questions. What if a new school of architecture suddenly emerged from a new and unexpected place? What if Africa and the African diaspora held the key to overcoming so many contemporary challenges of race, environmental justice, and new forms of urbanism? It's interesting for us to consider the what-if nature of the African Future Institute. Uh, What has been your relationship to that question over time, especially in connection to your practice as a writer? Mm -hmm. So for me, your transition to fiction writing is heavily connected to what we as architects do. To what extent is architecture a utopian pursuit? And what's your relationship between utopia and fiction, especially in relation to the what-if nature of Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. Institute? Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, I, I studied something else before I studied architecture, actually two degrees. One I started and stopped and then I did a degree in sociology. And one of the things that was really formative for me about architecture was the nature of the proposition in architecture. It's it's not enough to be critical or or to to study something. You have to propose something. And so there's something in the nature of the discipline that's very what if, because Mm -hmm. every act of design is is a kind of proposition to make something better in Mm -hmm. a way. And fiction for me was a way of exploring the same issues that I'd always been interested in, in -hmm. architecture. But 30 years ago, I think questions of race and identity were very much seen as peripheral and marginal to the pursuit of 
mm-hmm. architectural mm-hmm. knowledge. So fiction became a kind of safe space in a way where I could explore those ideas through the medium of writing. But it's also writing as a form of representation. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's really interesting about architecture is that unlike doctors, lawyers, you know, doctors practice on human bodies, lawyers use language. Architects use a kind of intermediary medium, which is representation. Architects don't actually build buildings, they build representations. So the nature of writing as a, as a form of representation was very interesting to me. And when I came back into architecture after, you know, 10, 12 years of fiction writing, suddenly the territory had opened up a little bit more. And especially in Africa, we could use forms of performance, we could use oral histories, we could mm-hmm. use film, we could use different media. And that suddenly seemed to open up new territory, mm-hmm, and which mm-hmm. is why I think the new directions and where this discipline will go are going to come from a place like Africa, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. isn't burdened in quite the same way with the traditions, the traditional canon. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of explorative space there that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, it's shocking to me, actually, because my thesis this year has turned into almost like a Afrofuture sci-fi mm-hmm story Mm -hmm. and I often say like I don't like poetry I'm not a writer and my whole thesis now has Mm -hmm. become me writing short stories Mm -hmm. and poetry and somehow it's within sci-fi and fiction Mm -hmm. that you can really find ways to represent Mm -hmm. blackness Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the future of architecture Mm -hmm. and Derry and I as we were forming these questions we're going back and forth of well is architecture always a utopian pursuit are we always creating a utopia and what exactly are you doing as an architect? And so then we, we decided that as architects, we tend to design with an invented narrative. And we set the stage for people to become actors in our works, mm-hmm. right? That's like the fundamental basis. Mm-hmm. So then we, considering the constructed projected futures in architectural production, how do we design for subjectivity and multiple points of view? And we're still not sure about that, uh, honestly. And we're wondering if that's something that you've been considering. Like, how do you do that or when you're designing do you always have a specific point of view or a specific subject i'm not sure i completely understand the question but Mm -hmm. i'm gonna answer what i think you're asking Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think in any creative pursuit you're always addressing someone i can't remember who who wrote it but you know for the religiously devout you're addressing god for the politically active you're addressing the masses there's always a voice to whom you speak and I think certainly when I started studying architecture, I realized very, very quickly that I was actually addressing simultaneously both myself and who I thought I was representing. So as a designer, I had, a, I guess, a kind of double consciousness about what I was doing because I was aware that whatever I proposed would be seen through the lens of my race first and foremost. So I was never just a student doing a project. I was a black student doing a project. And that blackness meant something to people around me, but it meant something different to me. So I think I realized very early on that my role was kind of the translator. So it was the translator between what I thought I was representing, what my own experiences, my history were, and an audience to whom I was speaking who had no understanding of that. Mm. And for me, it opened up this territory, and I don't know if this is answering your question completely, but it opened up this territory where I understood architecture as a kind of performance. But it was very hard to perform my blackness 
at the same time as I was exploring it. So I was having to explain what I was doing at the same time I was not sure what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And that tension for me has stayed, you know, in 30 years of practice. And what I finally come to understand, I think, is that the responsibility of the school is to take the burden of explanation off the students so that they are free to explore. Mm. And that when you want to bring new knowledge into the world, which I think is the job of the university, you have to be prepared to invent and support the conditions that allow new knowledge to be formed. And this is particularly around issues of race, because race is such a stand-in for so many other things that actually have nothing to do with race. Mm -hmm. That double consciousness, I mean, you know, you know, long history of people talking about it, that act of looking, being looked at, looking, being looked at, I think is very particular to Africans and diasporans. Yeah. Mm. And I see it as a very powerful tool, a very powerful subjectivity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess one question as students in design school, and I personally relate to what you just said about kind of exploring something while simultaneously trying to figure out what it is Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's definitely hard but i think when it comes in for my subjectivity uh, it's the act of being a responsible translator and trying to figure out what that responsibility means um or what i don't want to say mechanisms Mm because it sounds too formulaic but what steps Mm -hmm. one can take to be a translator and how the being a translator in the context of educational institution how that context complicates or Mm -hmm. simplifies it. And also, I think this kind of ties to a conversation we had about the complexity of post-colonial context and how to best consider the relationship between projecting new futures like we're talking about and then the act of remembering and memory Mm -hmm. is coming in one. But Mm -hmm. maybe that's a good thing, but the act of remembering the past and the notion of responsibility as translators, but in relation to projection and memory um, is something that um, I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are about. Again, I'm not 100% sure I completely understand the question, but I think what's very particular about the United States, which is very different in other parts of the world, is that the act of remembering, it's a political act. It's about trying to claim back something that has been suppressed in favor of another narrative that allows the society to move forward. So of all the the kind of cultural conditions I've experienced, the United States is the most aspirational in terms of looking to the future. It's a very forward-moving kind of culture. It's all about what we are going to become. And the tension between that utopic idea of, you know, free enterprise, meritocracy, you work hard, anybody can make it, you can in a sense, forget about who you were, this is a chance to remake yourself, etc., is a really powerful narrative. But simultaneously, there's another truth here, which is that that future was at someone else's expense. But recognizing the cost of that will derail the kind of utopic projection. So in some senses, at all costs, it has to be contained. Mm -hmm. And now what you see, I think, happening increasingly over the past 10, 5, and 2 years ago is the thrust of that other story breaking through the surface of this 
mythology. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very tense situation because if you look at it authentically, you will understand that one narrative will undo the other. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, well, can the wider society afford that? Because mm-hmm. if that utopic projection is not what holds us together, what will? Mm-hmm. And, and what I found here is that partly because of that tension, the fear of actually naming what's going on, language in the US is used very, very differently. It's partly why I struggle often to understand what the questions are, because it's wrapped up in a kind of language that neutralizes what we're really talking about. So you sort of have to talk in code around issues. And to me, (laughs) creativity absolutely insists that you don't speak in code because you have to be authentic. Mm -hmm. And that tension, I've never managed to figure out how to navigate it here. Yeah. Wow. I appreciate that point. Like um, the question I was just asking, if I'm being specific... Um, I'm thinking about a Toni Morrison essay where she wrote about the school as a place of, it can only do good work if it acknowledges the harm that it has done before. And I was doing the very point that you were just bringing up and kind of trying to talk about this idea, but uh, let's talk about it in Mm. using less precise language. But I mean, it's really or thinking about the educational institution and thinking about the harm that the education institution has done, even though the intentionality is good sometimes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm curious about that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think um, if someone were to ask me what is the most powerful or most valuable lesson I learned um, in the five years that I was in South Africa, what, if they were to ask me what is it that you think students learned and what did the school do, I would say it instilled confidence. Hmm. For me, that was the beyond training, beyond skills, beyond tools, beyond all of that. It was the formation of a kind of confidence. But confidence is a really interesting concept because in order to be confident, you also have to acknowledge doubt. Hmm. For me, that's the borderline between confidence and arrogance. Mm -hmm. And the ability of black students to hold simultaneously confidence and doubt is very much a condition of their own existence. Mm -hmm. And that ability is a very, very powerful creative force. It's quite a long-winded way of saying (laughs) that um, the very tension between harm and privilege in the US, one tends to think about it as a reparations conversation, Mm -hmm. that there's harm been done. So someone must either pay for the harm, whether, you know, financially, morally, whatever way, in order for the harm to be resolved. Mm -hmm. But... I think that that relationship between harm and privilege is actually a very productive space. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult for an an institution like a university to be able to hold those two contradictory positions. Mm -hmm. But what I think is amazing about architecture as a discipline is that architecture is all about contradiction. Mm -hmm. It's about teaching you how to hold incompatible truths, in in a sense, in the same space or to to create the structure for it. So when you were talking, for example, about Afrofuturism, I mean, I think it is a structure that allows you to hold trauma and aspiration and hope and fear. Afrofuturism is simply the the armature. It's not the goal. Mm-hmm. And I think the job, if you like, of the the school is to provide multiple armatures for us to be able to safely explore these conditions. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's another reason why. Another one of our questions was a little probably confusing because 
you know, we were trying to get to a way of being like a lot of conversations about when we're like, okay, the school should start teaching more things about black people or marginalized groups. Other people are like, well, what about us or something like that, right? So we're like, how can we be more subjective or how can we teach multiple points of view or how can we do this? Because at any point when you are prioritizing one, you are neglecting another or that is what people always think. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you're not neglecting another. You are just holding multiple Mm -hmm. points of view. But I feel like in the U.S. it's been such a struggle for so long Mm -hmm. to do because people are like, well, we'll be disappearing or something like that. But it's also very specific, I think, to a very competitive culture. It's one of the conundrums for me about the United States, but it's also one of the kind of magnetic draws about it, that all the contradictions are here. And so in a broader, extremely competitive society, that nature of pitting yourself, you know, one against the other, my interest group, your interest group, my pain, your pain, it's it's part of a much broader conversation. And that attitude towards, you know, one's narrative, one's identity, one's place in the world is, you know, the, the kind of superstructure of capitalism filters down into that. Mm-hmm. But I think I learned as a student Out of necessity, I didn't understand it at the time as a tactic, but I've later come to understand it was a very powerful tactic, was that sometimes the way to talk about something, to create that safe space to explore, is to talk about something through analogy. Mm -hmm. So you don't come to the issue directly, you come to the issue sideways or from the bottom or Mm -hmm. from the top or you cut through. Mm -hmm. And there's something about the way architects think that was very, very useful for me to be able to say you think that I'm talking about this, so that other thing that what, you know, the audience or the person that you're addressing thinks it is creates a kind of generosity so they're not on the defensive because they don't recognize it as an attack. Mm. And in that space, I can start to explore things that would otherwise be too painful or too traumatic in, in a very particular way. Mm. And I don't just mean hurtful. I mean also when you acknowledge trauma to create something you have to move beyond the act or the traumatic event that there has to be a space of i guess healing in a way but a a possibility to move beyond it and sometimes coming at something through analogy or sideways that buffer gives you the creator the space to process what you're looking at what you're reading what you're feeling Mm -hmm. in order to break through to new ground and i guess I think that's what the school ought to do, is to provide, through whatever means, that space of safety, which can also encompass danger and Mm -hmm. failure Mm -hmm. and accidents. Mm -hmm. And I think professional degrees, particularly like architecture, are often about the absence of those things because they're seen as unprofessional. Mm-hmm. I was reading about Namwali Serpel has done a lot of research on this. He was a freedom fighter, but then he also started a space program in Africa, but it was like almost a satirical space mm-hmm. program. And I was watching his videos because they were like just hilarious, but they were meant to be super satirical because he was like, we're training to go to space, mm-hmm. right? And he would write letters to Russia mm-hmm. and the U.S. and to anybody who was doing the space race at that time mm-hmm. to be like, oh, I don't care which side funds us. Just, you know, mm-hmm. somebody give us money to go to space. And their trainings would be like floating down the river in a mm-hmm. barrel, right? But it was like through that like excessive satire 
that he was trying to, like, make a point about colonialism and about, like, you guys are literally trying to go to the moon and our country is currently at war and mm-hmm. fighting for freedom. And we're currently struggling for power. But the weird thing is that he was becoming famous on the world stage mm-hmm. as trying to become an astronaut. Mm-hmm. But what he was known for in his country was being, like, a radical mm-hmm. um, and protesting and all of these things. And it, it's these weird, interesting parallels where in order to get visibility, it's almost like the Sun Ra method mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. in order to get people to see beyond the basic issues of colonialism, you almost have to take it to an absurd level of like futuristic sci-fi fiction metaphor for them to get it. And then, of course, the people who don't get it, I'm like, you really can't mm-hmm. see beyond yourself. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this, how sometimes I struggle thinking about do I want to stay in architecture almost? Because the architecture education that we've been given it's like, I feel like some of my classmates are, or I will be developing a fiction and they'll, they'll be like, what is this? And I'm like, you're not seeing beyond mm-hmm. what is being presented here. You're just seeing the objects, but there are metaphors and stories that are trying to get to a higher point here. Mm. And I was talking about this with Darian about how sometimes I'm like, should I just shift to art or something like that or design? But then... See, I think the conversation for a long time um, has somehow been that Africa blackness otherness is too complex it's too chaotic it's too disorganized it's too poor it's too corrupt there's some intrinsic lack in those conditions that render it useless to architecture so you know here you have a discipline that's it's robust it's strong it has long history precedent canon trajectory and suddenly there's this other thing mm-hmm. class race whatever it is and the discipline can't extract anything from it. It's, it's too inferior. And throughout my studies, and then later um, when I started teaching, one question would surface all the time with work that I was doing or work that my students were doing, which was, is it architecture? Is it architecture? Is it architecture? And oftentimes, you know, people would be looking at work and the conversation would move away from the work itself to the question of whether it was or it wasn't architecture. And after some time, I began to realize that actually architecture is the issue, not blackness or Africa or diaspora or race or any of those other, for me, really rich, interesting, creative topics. It was that the discipline itself was not sophisticated enough to be able to use these conditions. Mm. It was afraid of them. So that dynamic between architecture and what I called otherness the response for 20, 25 years seemed to me to only exacerbate the vulnerability and the insecurity of the discipline. And so the the way forward for many people, students, graduates, practitioners like myself, was to move out of the discipline. So, you know, in a in a huff, I left architecture and I went to fiction writing. And I was a fiction writer for 12 years because I thought, I can't force this discipline I've pushed as hard as I can. It's not admitting what I think is important or what I know. Let me go somewhere else. And somehow that space of being away from it for whatever it was, 10, 12 years, gave me enough distance from it so that when I came back to it the second time, I came back at it stronger. I came back at it thinking, okay, let's roll up our sleeves and and let's tussle here because you've beaten me once you're not going to do it a second time. And that coincided in South Africa with the student protests in 2015 and 2016. 
And suddenly there was this word decolonization, decolonizing the curriculum, that became another kind of armature in the same way that I think Afrofuturism is an armature. Mm -hmm. And it was a very clever move because decolonization was a broad enough theme, but also specific enough that the university, and by the university I mean the, the kind of broader academy, was suddenly under attack. And in that space of attack and defense, suddenly architecture became quite important because we were talking about space, we were talking about form, we were talking about material conditions, we were talking about structures. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the metaphor, if you like, or the analogy of decolonizing the curriculum, for me was the key to open the door. And at that point I thought, okay, now we've won. Now these issues are in the belly of the beast. And I think, fast forward to 2020, Black Lives Matter, done it on a global scale. So for me, there's no going back now. We kind of have to acknowledge, okay, architecture, you've got to deal with this. But deal with it creatively, productively. Don't deal with it defensively. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess, how, how does dealing with that change based on the context? Meaning, I'm curious about what decolonizing the curriculum means, um, like in the context of America or in the context of South Africa, um, where there are some similarities with the histories, but a lot of differences. Versus like also Ghana versus also like England, mm -hmm. you know. You know, when I first started teaching in the U.S. in, I think it was 1997, it was the first time I'd ever heard the phrase a design problem. Like I literally didn't know what it was. And I said to the student, like, what do you mean? And he said, what's the design problem for the semester? And to me, the word design and problem are like diametrically opposed. You know, I don't see architecture as a, as a series of problems and design is the, the tool that fixes them. That's not kind of how I read it. And I realized, I mean, again, to go back to the idea of language, in the UK, the skill of the tutor is to set the brief. So what the student was calling a design problem was what I would call a brief. But a brief is very open-ended. You can set a fiction within a brief in almost any direction it's very difficult to set a design problem outside of the parameters of problem solving. And so for me, that first act of inviting something from the student was taken away by this relationship of, here's the problem, what are your tools to solve it? And I think I've never understood architecture in that way. I'm not saying that there are not challenges in architecture. Of course they are. Mm -hmm. But somehow the training of someone to become the kind of professional who can tackle both things that are known, but at the same time put forward ideas about things that are not yet known, just seems to me to be really the most magical part of this discipline. Yeah, And that narrow interpretation, for me it was narrow, I'm sure people would beg to differ, but the narrowness of that relationship, which was very transactional for me, mm -hmm. here's a problem, here's a solution. That relationship between transaction and what I would call transformation, which is closer to translation, it's closer to speculation, it's closer to imagination, I think is also a byproduct of an incredibly competitive capitalist economy. And you can't get away from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess a couple thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the first is, I actually do remember a couple of years ago when, you know, we had brought up to the GSD, you know, we really need to diversify our curriculum for the mm -hmm. architecture program. We really need to. And um, they were like, yeah, 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 we hear you. And we were like, especially if we're like, you know, the top in the world, 
like one of the top in the world. We need to. And they're like, yes, but you need to remember this is a school in the West. And the, the counter from us students was, okay, but if we want to keep being top in the world, we have to be, you know, worldly. And they were like, mm-hmm. and we were like, you know, it was this weird thing where they're like, to justify why they didn't need to be covering other cultures, like, they were like, but we are in the West. And we were like, no, because your students, you're trying to pull students from all over the world. So if you're going to educate people from all over the world, you can't educate them here and then send them back out, teaching them about the same, like, people. So it's just so confusing to me sometimes when it's that issue of defensiveness, right? Where it's like, you can't be defensive. You need to acknowledge it. So the school has been doing a lot better about it. And I I really do appreciate that. But sometimes I'm like, man, I don't know. And like on the show, we've been talking to several black women and I'm always like, I don't know if I want to be a licensed architect. Everybody hears me complain about all the time. Um, And I think it is part of this like issue where I'm like the hubris that goes into being an architect, the design problem issue the steps they make you take, the hoops they make you jump through, and then they don't pay you enough. And it's a rich person's thing, basically, to do. And then often the kind of architects that are praised are the ones that are not necessarily doing work that's actually benefiting people. So even the way that we're taught at school, right, it seems to be like the urban planning program, they're the ones that actually know about communities. And they're the ones that while we're in school here, they are actually engaged with local communities and us in architecture, we will be doing projects based on the most in-the-middle-of-nowhere projects with the most in-the-middle-of-nowhere brief prompt things that are not actually benefiting anyone in any way. How have you gone about, when you were formalizing your own briefs or coming up with your own ideas for architectural knowledge, what were some of the fundamentals that you considered to kind of avoid these ideas of hubris and to be a bit more engaged with actual people while also like you said earlier allowing people to explore who they are and giving students this room to develop their own confidence Mm. and skills because there are certain skills that we do need to learn right and keeping students excited about the future of architecture without making them feel like they're just going to enter the field Mm. and be like another cog in the architecture world machine good question i mean i'm gonna answer it i think in a very roundabout way So this morning, I was reading about the proposed ceasefire in Ukraine. And there was one sentence in the description, which was that they were attempting to hold talks with no preconditions. And the absence of a precondition seemed to be the basis on which Russia and Ukraine could potentially talk. And we clearly know one side has no intention of coming into a dialogue with no preconditions, and in a sense, the preconditions are the reasons for the invasion. And it reminded me of when we set up the GSA, I was somehow adamant that there would be no preconditions to what students could, should do. In other words, we had to construct a kind of space that was completely open. And by that I mean... When I see students in the US and to a certain extent in the UK, not in Africa, but let's say in the diaspora, there are hundreds of euphemisms that, you know, are swirling around benefiting the people, engaging community, uplifting, empowerment. There's a kind of rhetoric around how an architect should think, make, do. And it seems to me that that rhetoric 
has become a kind of precondition which enables everyone, again, to act through this smokescreen. But the real question of the history of race, the history of exploitation, extraction, oppression, trauma, is somehow neutralized in these terms. And I'm speaking very slowly because I'm trying to think my way through the response. And I suppose I see these terms, equity, diversity, social justice, inclusion, I see those as kinds of unhelpful preconditions because they deny black students the possibility, the same freedom that other students have to take material matter ideas and transform those ideas in their own authentic voices. They're always having to speak somehow in another language. And I think I was very clear when we set up the GSA that we were not going to do that. So there was no precondition, there was no preconditioned interest, there was no preconditioned concept, no preconditioned perspective that the students came to. And it was partly because of the space created by the decolonizing the curriculum movement where we were able to say to the students, here, in this space, for the next year, two years, three years, we are collectively going to figure out what new canon can be. And there are no preconditions to it. And that space um, was, I think, very unusual. It's too soon to tell whether, in inverted commas, it worked. You know, architecture is a long trajectory. You know, you plant a seed here, you might not see the results for another generation. But I do think that these questions that we're talking about, these are two, three-generation gestation. You know, for some people, that's too long to wait. You know, you want change now. But I can almost guarantee that if you don't start somewhere with this process, in 50 years' time, we are likely to be in exactly the same place. And someone was saying to me, I think it was yesterday or the day before, you know, the conversations that African Americans had in, in the U.S. in the 60s are the same conversations we're having today. You know, on the one hand, this is about race and about identity, but on another level, it's about all of us. And I've said it so often, I mean, the whole framework of decolonization, you know, which, yes, it's linked to the colonial, but it's, you know, it's also linked to much more. This is a gift. This is a gift to canon. It only enriches it. So the, the fear and the defensiveness, I have to accept that that's out of someone else's insecurity and that's never a good place to make decisions. Mm. Thank you for no, sharing thank you. that. No, that was a very insightful, yeah. I want to think through what you just shared and what you just offered in relation to the profession of architecture. Mm-hmm. And to the point about licensure, to the point about the institutional barriers that architects face outside of school and the difficulties that come with practicing architecture. As I was listening, I was hearing what I understood as articulating the school as a place to kind of shelter the student and kind of a shelter to hold as they develop and Mm -hmm. bring those ideas into the world. But I think for me, a lot of the existential energy always comes from, well, what happens when I, after school, Mm -hmm. how can I continue pursuing these ideas? Mm -hmm. If I do my thesis, what do I do after that? Am I just going to get a job? Am I going to have time to explore these issues and tend to them? Mm -hmm. Because it does take a lot of energy that I'm not quite sure 
how I work in a professional context. So I'm really interested mm-hmm. what she think the relationship between the school is and the profession in light of conversations we've been having. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the longest time, it has seemed to me, both as a student and as a, let's say, a, a younger, you know, faculty member, tutor or whatever, for a long time, it seemed to me as if the school was a haven away from the real world. Like mm-hmm. that was kind of the dynamic and that somehow when you finished, you would be let out into the real world. Mm-hmm. And what you would find there would be very different from what was inside. And then I would say in the last 10 years, it's been increasingly clear that the real world is more complex richer, more inventive than the narrative that I was sold as a student about what the real world would be. Mm. And the way I'm going to explain that more clearly is not to talk about architecture for a second, but when I was a fiction writer, there was always a kind of nervous tension about the number of black characters in my novel because my reading audience was largely European. And so my publishers, you know, were not too many, you know. They were kind of projecting what they thought the reading public could take. Yeah. In 10 years of writing fiction, I don't think a fan ever wrote to me to complain about there being too many African or black characters. Like, it just didn't even figure. Mm-hmm. And actually, a lot of the emails I used to get or the Instagram messages or whatever were about people saying they didn't realize until maybe they'd ended the book, that this character was from Mali. or like For them, it was not the first lens through which they read the character. And I remember thinking, hmm, the reading public is actually much more sophisticated than the publishers believe it to be, which is to do with things, very real things like risk. Mm -hmm. When a publisher signs you up and pays you money to write a book, there's a risk element because they've got to earn back that. So, you know, the, the kind of economy of publishing also creates a kind of environment. Fast forward to architecture schools, and I think what's been really interesting in the last 10 years is that suddenly the speed and complexity of the world outside seems to offer, I think, architects a chance to be relevant in a way that they've been fighting their lack of relevance over the past, let's say, 20 years, you know, People have been taking chunks out of the architectural profession, you know, project managers, quantity surveyors, IT, whatever it is. And suddenly, here we are in this really complex, fast-moving, very world full of contradictions. And this training, which I still maintain is is one of the most powerful, imaginative kind of forms of training, Mm -hmm. suddenly can produce people who can deal with that. But they may not be practicing or licensed architects. I see what we call design thinking as being increasingly relevant to all kinds of fields. And so the narrowness, I think, of the way we think of architects, I think the times are going to change that. Mm -hmm. So to go back to the very first question you asked me, which is what if a, a new school emerged in a place that everybody didn't expect it? I think it's partly because the conditions in Africa are exacerbated. They are faster, more volatile, more complex than many conditions here simply because of the infrastructure, let's say in the global north, mm-hmm. that manages to kind of keep a lid on many things. But for example, in the in the pandemic, during COVID, in Ghana, we don't really have a health service per se. We don't have an integrated public transport service. We don't have welfare. Mm-hmm. But people just managed. 
they are so resilient, they are so used to figuring out stuff for themselves that, you know, COVID was just another thing that you dealt with. I would fly into New York or London, the whole city's collapsing with all of this infrastructure. So suddenly this relationship between your lived experience and your ability to withstand volatility mm-hmm. seemed to be a really important component of what the 22nd century is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think here we're clinging, I mean, I'll probably be shot for saying this, but I think we're clinging to an idea of a profession that exists in some ways, but actually there are so many more opportunities for architects to practice that have nothing to do with putting a building together. Mm. And that, I think, is, I want to say to students who are very, very like fearful about what's going to happen when I hand in my thesis and I go off to do the licensing exam, and I've been dealing with all of these rich, inventive, imaginative things, and suddenly there's no space for it in corporate practice, I feel like saying to them, well, then don't look at corporate practice. Mm. That's not where your professional future lies. Mm-hmm. But that's a slow burn. It's it's going to take a long time to also to have the economy around that that can sustain mm-hmm. new forms of practice. But I would say that that is your generation's battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of my classmates have been shocked to hear when I'm like, oh, I'm not going to architecture firm. And they're like, what? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm looking at tech, other design stuff. Yeah. Ever since I came here, I called the GSD art school for non-artists to mm-hmm. me because mm-hmm. I'm like, it's art school and I couldn't pick a medium. <laughs> so mm-hmm. then I did every medium. Well, every form of media and all that stuff. And I'm like, you learn art on every scale from like the micro to the macro and all of that. And I think that we are so capable to do so much as architects. Mm-hmm. And then I get so shocked, honestly, sometimes when I have seen some of my classmates producing the same style of project from year one till now. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because one of my friends and I, we were talking the other day and he said that he brought this up in a meeting. He thinks that, you know, the awards they tend to give out are like best this or like nicest whatever. And he's like, I think it should really be people who are like most improved or most whatever. Because we were like, we've seen too many people come in with a set of skills and then leave with that same set of skills Mm -hmm. and produce the same white model with the same Mm -hmm. thing that just looks like the same whatever. And um, he was also saying that there was some survey or something that had said that apparently Harvard students, like in general, especially Harvard undergrads, Mm -hmm. are the least like improved students because Harvard is already getting the best of the best or something. So by the time they graduate, they're actually not Mm -hmm. learning more because they are already smart. So it's almost like the school is wasting Mm -hmm. the good (laughs) professors, like no, literally like the smart people on smart people. And I don't know, it almost feels that way sometimes when I'm like, we learn so many skills here, guys, and I'm just seeing you doing the same thing and making the same thing and then like why are you here if you're not expanding your skills but I mean some people know the trajectory they want to do in architecture but there are other people that I'm like you can do so much you're doing so many cool things why do you think you need to go to an architecture firm and I think like I see some of my classmates going yeah no I want to do fashion I want to do this or that and I find it so interesting that so many people come from undergrads where they did diverse stuff into architecture but then they get to architecture school and then they think they need to stay in architecture. And I don't know what about the field does that, where it's almost like it creates a weird elitism that makes you think that I must now be an, a star architect or something. But I think, you know, there's many, many other um, factors at play, particularly in the U.S. And I found the U.S. the most difficult structure to teach in. And for really, no pun intended, concrete reasons. 
And one is the cost of education, which, you know, when I went to architecture school, I was paid by the British government to go to school. I went to, you know, I was paid to go to university. So, and it's not the case now, but it meant that I had a different relationship to my education in general. I saw it differently. It wasn't an investment in quite the same way. Mm -hmm. The second is the fragmentation of the curriculum. The U.S. curriculum is a mystery to me. You know, <laughs> the talk of credits and core and electives, and I literally just can't wrap my head around it. I need a spreadsheet to understand the path. The relationship between undergraduate and graduate is also a little bit foreign to me. You know, in the U.K., if you study... I studied sociology. In order to study architecture, you can't go in at the graduate level. You go back to year one. Now, you can do that in a country where you're not paying for your education. You're not paying twice. Mm. But there was no schism, in a sense, between undergraduate and graduate in quite the same way there is here. There's a different kind of dynamic. And we didn't have semesters. So I stayed in the same unit for two years, both in the first degree and in the second degree, which meant that I had time to really develop a body of work. So I wasn't saving everything up for that thesis year where suddenly you can do what you want. Actually, there you start thesis almost from year one because your education is geared to what you're interested in. Not completely because, you know, you still have to acquire skills and so on. But the notion that I would have to slog through this other stuff in order to get to the real stuff, that wasn't in that curriculum. And the other last point was that I was always taught by two people. So in the curriculum in the UK and, and what we replicated in South Africa was that the students understood from the get-go that the production of knowledge was a dialogue. Hmm. It was first and foremost a dialogue between two people who led the group of students, and then it was a dialogue between them and the students. We found that about 15 students, an odd number, was the optimum number of students that, that could be held by two people. At 12 or 13, there wasn't quite enough critical mass, and about 16, 17, it became a little bit too big. And so there was an, a kind of laboratory-like condition where we knew if we followed that, we would get good results. And it seemed to me in the, in the question of decolonization, what was the kind of imperative there, if you wanted change... You had to be prepared to structurally change everything about the way you teach in order to get the result that you claim to want. So again, the school had to literally put its money where its mouth was. If this is the paradigm and this is the end result, the school now has to figure out, and you know, architects are smart people, we can design structures. The curriculum for me was a design challenge. How do we structure this thing in order to get this output? When I came to the U.S., the conversation was the complete reverse. Here is the curriculum. Here is the structure. You do not tamper with it. But I still want this. For me, this was an impossibility. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, I don't know, half a dozen, whatever the expression is, you know, you go on doing the same thing over and over again and you expect a different result. I think they call that madness. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of where we are. Yeah. But, you know, universities, they're bureaucracies, they're, they're armies. I mean, it's very difficult for a very large institution to suddenly just switch. Mm -hmm. The tenure system, the investment, all of that, they're real constraints. 
So my question in a way now is, well, okay, if architecture realizes that there's a, a possibility for a different kind or a different form of practice or a different form of training or a different form of thinking, is the university going to be the place that produces it? Mm-hmm. And if it is not, what is the potential role of collaborations between other spaces so that the structure and the kind of might of the university can encourage or support or empower other spaces, other places where different kinds of knowledge can be produced. So I think, you know, for me personally, this is a very exciting time mm-hmm. um, because I think a lot is up for grabs. Yeah. I'm relating to a lot of things during this conversation and just sharing one way I've responded to going through a curriculum and kind of not necessarily feeling like I would do it that way, mm-hmm. kind of dealing with that distortion or that distance from like my experience and the curriculum's experience Mm -hmm. but just thinking through uh, the power of intentionality um what does that mean i'm not sure what intentionality means what is that like hmm so i guess the best so there's this dj i really like i'm answering it in a roundabout way his name is benji b Mm -hmm. um he has a show that i really like and listen to most weeks Um, i was listening to a podcast with him and he said that intentionality is a frequency when he's constructing a dj set And what he meant by that is that when you're making a DJ set, if you put time in to kind of set, like, Mm -hmm. playlist of songs, and it comes out. It's it's something you could hear. And I think in the context of school, I found that I have a different relationship and a different kind of engagement with the curriculum, Mm -hmm. depending on the type of intentionality I put into it. So, for example... I've had periods where I am going through a curriculum and I'm stressed and I'm spizzy and I end up not having the connection I want with my work mm-hmm. versus another form of presence with my work, mm-hmm. which has a, another form of engagement with mm-hmm. the work. Mm-hmm. And realizing that I have the power to change my intentionality and the relationship with the work, but I don't have the power to change what's being asked of me to mm-hmm. relate mm-hmm. with the work. Mm-hmm. That's just something I wanted to share um, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. someone who's going through this. Mm-hmm. And there's not a particular question. But one question I do have is in engaging with the structures, how do we bring the energy of this conversation into mm-hmm, other spaces? Because, mm-hmm. for example, for me, architecture it doesn't necessarily have to end in a building. And I understand that. But oftentimes I'm engaging with spaces and that's not the consensus of the room. And sometimes it's hard to open up that conversation and have dialogue in the kind of way we're talking now. Mm-hmm. And how you've addressed that mm-hmm, or if you've learned mm-hmm, how to mm-hmm. do that in your career and mm-hmm. um, bringing your ideas into a space where you might not be at the same page with other people. Sure. It's a really good question. I mean, when I started studying at the Bartlett's, uh, I started in 1989. I went into the first year. And it was the what we call the old Bartlett's. So this was before um, Sir Peter Cook arrived. And it was kind of... We didn't do any design in first year. You know, design was something that was reserved for when you were smart enough to go into second year. And it was a lot of history and endless precedent studies. And I think those things that you call survey courses, Mm -hmm. that was kind of what the curriculum was. And then we heard, you know, Peter Cook was coming. None of us knew who he was. And there was a lot of buzz and excitement about it. And then suddenly, boom, he arrived and the unit system arrived. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I went into second year, the first day of the year, there were, I think, six units in undergraduates well, the three-year degree, and we walked into this hall and two people got up and said, we're interested in the relationship between Walkmans and the city. Okay. And then another two people got up and said, we love the idea of nanotechnology and architecture. Okay. 
And then somebody else came up and said, you know, I'm interested in Afrofuturism, whatever it was. So we all sat there with this ballot sheet and we were asked to choose which unit we'd go into. Mm-hmm. And everybody sat and looked at each other and, you know, you, you didn't really know enough to know whether nanotechnology or, you know, Walkman or whatever it was. So you sort of made decisions about what you were going to do for the rest of the year on a gut feeling. And as soon as you entered into the unit, very quickly you went on a field trip. And that experience of going away from your home location with 12 or 15 or whatever it was, other people and your two tutors, and you went out to, you know, had a drink with them in the evening and it became a kind of social experience, Mm -hmm. was the basis of the trust that had to be built between the tutors and the students, but also between students and students. And that trust was the foundation that carried you through the year of exploration. And nobody was sure what was coming. You know, nobody knew it had to be a white model and the plans and sections. Like, it was very, very open. At one level, the openness was terrifying because you're being asked to produce something that you don't even know how to produce. And I remember Peter Cook said a couple of things in that first year that stayed with me throughout my teaching career. He said, architects synthesize information. Primarily, that's what you do. So I don't ever want the experience of an architecture student in the school to be unsynthetic. I don't ever want to hear a student say I'm in module 74721 and then I'm going to go to studio 62625. There should be a seamless experience. So even though there were things that kind of looked like modules, Mm -hmm. I could never tell you what the name of my class was. (laughs) I simply knew I was in the unit. The second thing he used to say is you will learn 50% of what you know from your tutors and 50% from each other. So get to know your each other because they will be your learning peer. And again, what the school had to do was provide the environment in which we could learn from one another. And that meant, for example, having a shared space in which you worked in your unit It meant having at regular moments crossovers with other units so that you didn't become this kind of isolated, arrogant bubble. It was like a very sophisticated way of designing an environment that would produce the good result. But it also meant, for example, that I could come to the unit with an obsession about race, which had never been dealt with in the Bartlett before, ever. Mm -hmm. But the school was a generous and confident enough place that their response was, bring it on. Mm-hmm. You want to spend a year thinking about the relationship between race and architecture? Be our guest. Off you go. Mm-hmm. And the person who taught me, my unit tutor, didn't know, I mean, English guy, didn't know the first thing about it. Mm-hmm. But his generosity allowed he and I to create something together. Mm-hmm. And that formative experience has been what I have tried to do in the schools in which I have taught ever since. And it eventually led me to the conclusion, I can't do this within an existing institution because all of your energy goes towards trying to change the existing institution. Mm. I need to get out and make a different kind of institution. And that just happened to be my way of doing it because I had an alternative career as a fiction writer. And in that sense, I was not as dependent on the system as I might otherwise have been. Mm. I don't have any children. I don't Mm. have dependents. I have two Mm. passports. I can move. So there were a bunch of very, very specific conditions that allowed me to do that. And I don't say that this is the way for everybody. Mm -hmm. But I think I recognized when you try to change an institution, you've got to be clear about the battle you're going to take on. Mm -hmm. 
and increasingly universities, partly to do with their cost, to do with their size, to do with their history, you have to be really dedicated to fighting that kind of institutional battle. And I, I just ran out of steam. That actually goes into another question that we worry about and wonder about sometimes is how do we, especially as Black designers, or also just even Black students, take care of our mental health? Mm -hmm. And I feel like mental health is like the word everybody uses now. But we put so much of ourselves into our work. And like even through my thesis, I tell everyone thesis has been cathartic Mm -hmm. because when I cry and I'm working on my thesis, it's because I'm motivated. It's like I'll be discovering other Black designers from the past and they're so motivational that I'll be like crying like, what? what's such beautiful work? I hope someone discovers my work 50 years from now and I'm like, great. Versus like in the past, if I was crying, it was like a mental breakdown, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm like, how do we check ourselves to know our levels, you know, and know when we're being existential in a good way and existential in a bad way and, you know, just keep ourselves in check because these are things our other classmates don't have to do mm-hmm. and how have you been able to check in with yourself because like anytime when you do have to check in with yourself it takes strength to do that know when you're mm-hmm. you've had enough mm-hmm. great question i think when i started architecture school it was the first time i realized that the thing i was studying was not a performance that would get me a job set me up for the rest of my life. I think it was the first time I realized that something of who I am is what I'm working on. And the knowledge that discipline was a mouthpiece for talking about bigger things, it took me a while to get that. And it it happened when I I went to work in South Africa as as an architect in between the first three-year degree and then the the second master's level. And I worked in a township in Namibia And one of my first jobs was to go into a township house and put in a toilet and a bathroom. And the township house, it's called the, I think it's the NE52. It's a kind of, it's like a child's model of a drawing. You know, there's like a child's drawing of a house, you know, a rectangle, two windows, door, that's it. So I remember going in and talking to the grandmother who lived there. And I said, we don't want to mess with the plumbing. So the best thing would be to put in a a bathroom extension close to, you know, where you have the existing plumbing. And she looked at me and she said, what plumbing? I said, where's your bathroom? And she said, it's in the yard. And the model, the housing model in the township was that you had four of those kind of child's rectangle houses and then a communal pit latrine. And I remember thinking for the first time, wow, some architect designed that layout. Some architect sat down and drew a plan for that house and decided that 15 people could live in two rooms and then share a pit latrine. Like it was the first time I think I'd realized that architecture had a political, mm-hmm. I don't know, agenda or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that moment was like a eureka moment because I thought, okay, if an architect has studied and trained and gotten all the tools and then can still go and produce that, what could I produce that's not that? Like it was a, it was a big moment. And then when I came back to the Bartlett and I was really clear, I'm going to tackle issues of race and identity because these are issues that propel me in the world. They're questions I have about the world. Somehow this discipline is going to deal with them in some way. By the end of it, I was exhausted, like completely drained. But the knowledge that this wasn't just about me was a kind of energy which is kind of counterintuitive because at one level, architecture is all about you. You know, it's like very individual. What do you think? What are your design tools? What is your idea? But it was the 
beginning of an understanding that there was me and then there was something else. And I think to go back to that idea of a kind of a double consciousness, it was the energy that allowed me, it fed me, I think, in moments where I felt so depleted. When I started going into university administration, you know, I was the dean um, for a while, I realized that arena didn't feed me at all. So teaching gives you something back, especially students. They bring something. Administration brought me nothing. Mm -hmm. So my decision to, and I, and I said this publicly, it was an act of self-preservation because if I had stayed in that environment in which I gave, 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 and got nothing back, I would die. Mm -hmm. For me, it was that simple. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it was a question of mental health per se, but it was a kind of recognition that the change arena, if that's the space you're in, requires a lot. And you have to figure out in that arena what's going to give you back something because you can't continuously give. You will give until there's nothing of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for students, I think, you know, the understanding that this is not your fight alone. This is not your individual response. This is a kind of collective generational larger movement. And it's not only about blackness. I mean, in some senses, this is about all of us, mm -hmm. I think is a really important aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's so rare to be able to have a conversation like this. Yeah. Yes, yes, face so to face. Yeah. Um, Especially face like, to face now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm really grateful. In closing, do you have anything to challenge us as the future generation of Black architects, Black designers, or just designers in general? Yeah. I mean, I, I used to say this to students in South Africa that, you know, to be angry is only the first step. In some senses, it's the easy step. You have to move beyond that. So not to forget that anger can open a door, but it can also quickly close it. So for this generation, what's going to be the mechanism that, that allows you to keep that door open, to keep dialogue flowing? And it sounds so corny, but to keep hope alive. Because I think one of the really pernicious things about anger is it, it can eat you. And, you know, in the end, the source of your anger, whether it's the institution, the academy, the man, who, you know, whoever that source is, he, it will rumble on whether you're angry or not. So it's a double burden, but that is your burden to figure out how to find a way through this. And I think, you know, the, the question of should I give up architecture or should I do something else or do fashion, I think for me is that's somehow the easy bit. The difficult bit is to change architecture. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the beast that needs changing. Mm -hmm. Very true. So don't give up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. And I guess, and even if you don't do architecture, you're still you, doing you, architecture. You're still doing architecture. And you're, you're doing architecture. But yeah. it's important to yeah. claim that. I there guess, was a you know, great to, organization. I mean, this is probably about 20 years old and it, I mean, it no longer exists. I think it was called quitters.org. Uh -huh. And I think it was started <laughs> by some Dutch students, but it was so long since I actually heard it. So I, I could be completely making it up. But I mean, the thing did exist and it was a website that was dedicated to people who had studied architecture but had gone on to do much more interesting things. <laughs> wow, <laughs> love that. And the that. list was long. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> but it was fantastic. And I just thought quitters.org, that was fantastic. I love yeah. it. I love it. My favorite thing is telling, like every time somebody, you know, an actor or whoever comes up on screen, I just go, 
they studied architecture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my family just goes, enough. Mm-hmm. And I go, just saying. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a great article, um, I think it's in the New Yorker about Virgil Abloh. Rest in peace. And, yeah, mm-hmm. R.A.P.D. Um, but it was about how his core discipline was architecture. Mm-hmm. And that was the kind of foundational knowledge that he went into music, into fashion. And it was, it was a great article. And he never stopped being an architect, which was great. That's yeah. deep. Okay, great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Thank you, you so much. much. My Woo. total pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. Thank great. You. Very, very interesting conversation. I'm Tara Luafemi. And I'm Darren Carr. And you've been listening to The Nexus, a product of the African-American Design Nexus at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maggie Janik. And we would like to thank DJ Iwe for our theme music. To learn more about the African-American Design Nexus, visit us online at aadn.gsd.harvard.edu.